I've had the opportunity to talk with a lot of people about their faith over the years. And one observation I'd make is that many people don't actually reject the gospel. They, they don't actually reject Jesus. They reject certain things Christians do in Jesus' name. Uh, they may reject the way they perceive how Christians act in the world. They may reject all the baggage that has been added to the gospel over the years. Uh, they may reject what sometimes we call Jesus plus. Now, there clearly is something scandalous about the cross, something offensive about the gospel. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 1.20. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us it's the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a, kind of an, a hard message. Matthew 7, 13, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So Jesus and the New Testament writers just come out and say, this is a, uh, this is a scandalous message. There's something that kind of goes against our intuition about this God-man living and dying on a cross, rising again, that we need forgiveness, need saving, that something's wrong with the kingdoms of the world and we need to be a part of a different kingdom. There is something that is offensive about that message. Jesus himself preached the gospel thousands of times and had 12 followers three years later. So we need to just acknowledge that sometimes people reject the gospel because it's offensive, it's scandalous. Well, in today's passage, we begin the second missionary journey, which will take Paul 2,000 miles across the Aegean Sea and ultimately into Europe. And he'll begin by revisiting churches he and Barnabas planted in Galatia, which is southern Turkey. Uh, then he'll go across the Aegean Sea, and he'll start sharing the gospel in places where the gospel had never gone before. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking a little bit about our new neighborhood and our future together. And some of the prayer walks we took last spring, and some of the incredibly beautiful churches that are in our neighborhood, enormous churches. And you probably know a little of the history about that. The gospel takes root in hearts and neighborhoods in different ways. A hundred years ago, many Americans had strong denominational affiliations. Um, so when they moved into a city like Knoxville from the farm to work in the factory, the first thing that they did was look uh, up in the sky at the plane that's coming over and uh, <laughs> say, I need, to <laughs> I need to get on that and get out of town. Um, no, what they did was they, they had some affiliation with the denomination, and, and so they, 
the denominational headquarters would go to a seminary, hire somebody, send them to the neighborhood, and they'd build these great churches, and they were filled. Uh, and so we have these beautiful, there's a Lutheran church, a Methodist church, a Catholic church, an Episcopal church, a Baptist church, a First Christian church. And 100 years ago, uh, thousands of people every week were in them. Now, 40 years ago, people started leaving the cities and moving to the suburbs, and many Americans still had some kind of a religious affiliation, so they'd go in the suburbs, and they would try to find a church maybe that had more contemporary worship and better kids programming, and the church grew dramatically then. But then about 20 years ago, many Americans started to no longer identify with Christianity, and many of those who didn't move back into the city, into what we might now call a post-Christian or a secular age. And so one of the questions that I think we're asking as a church is, how does the gospel take root in a secular age? What does that look like? It's different than putting up uh, your denominational single or, or having a climbing wall. That, that isn't enough in, in our context anymore. And one of the reasons that I've been interested in Acts with us this year in this uh, exciting time of transition is even though the early uh, Christians weren't living in a secular world, they were living in a world that really was not open to Christianity, not biased towards Christianity, and so it's an opportunity to see how the gospel goes forth in that kind of a, of a setting. Now, as Paul starts the second missionary journey that brings the gospel to Europe, uh, we see kind of a strange story that actually reveals quite a bit about how Paul thought about doing ministry. It starts, Paul came to Derby and Lystra. And just kind of by way of passing, in Acts 14, when we studied that, it says that Paul came home to Antioch through Lystra and Derby, And those are two small cities on the Imperial Roman Road that connected Antioch with Galatia. And why does Luke say that Paul came home through Derby and Lystra and then went out through Lystra and Derby? Why does he reverse the names? Because he's looking at a map. And when you come this way, you hit them in that order. And when you go that way, you hit them in the other order. Now, why is that significant? Because Luke is writing history. The rules for history were different in the first century. They didn't care as much about chronological timelines and the like. But they really thought they were writing history, events that really happened. And Luke is not writing myth. Um, and he's using oral traditions. He's using source documents that he's gotten a hold of. He's using interviews. He's using his own memory of things that he'd heard about. And that means that when we read the book of Acts, we need to read it as, as ancient history, not as myth. Uh, and so when we read stories about uh, healings or miracles or uh, gifts or angels or even things like uh, preaching in which Christ is proclaimed as Lord and his resurrection is talked about. This is all presented as history by Luke, and it's history that the early church believed as early as 60 AD. And one of the reasons I point that out is that there's, there's, there's kind of a, a, a way of thinking about this today that says, well, actually, 
the Christians didn't really believe in all this stuff. They kind of invented it up over time. And by the time you get to the fourth century at Nicaea, uh, they decide that they want Jesus to be God for political reasons. And I'm just suggesting that's bad history. If you, if you want to disbelieve in the early church's claim that Christ was Lord and, and God and the resurrection and miracles, fine, fine. But just don't believe it and, and say, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> this is what Luke was trying to say. We need to read the document that way. Now, one of the things that I love about Luke is he just doesn't cover up the messy stuff. And as somebody was talking with me about this. Somebody said, you know, I just don't like the Bible. There's too many contradictions, and it doesn't all fit nicely together. And if it were really God's book, you know, there wouldn't be all that in there. And, and we both said, actually, that's what we love about the Bible. <laughs> it's a mess. It's real. It's jagged. It's rough. And you see people's dark sides, and you see people's good sides. Nobody's trying to clean it up. It's about real human beings with a real God trying to share the gospel in a real world. And now, if you remember, if you've been following along, Paul has just lost his closest friend and partner, Barnabas, through a painful relational conflict. They'd been together from the beginning. They were inseparable. Silas is with them now, but Silas disappears in two chapters. Uh, we don't get the feeling that they ever became close. And, you know, you know, I think if we were to actually be with Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and Silas on the ground in these days, and now we're probably about uh, 8042, I think it would just have felt like chaos. I think it would have felt like a train wreck. I think it would have been terrifying. I think it would have been like careening down a hill, wondering when you were going to go off the tracks. I mean, in Acts 15, the whole thing almost blows up. They barely get through that. As soon as they get through that, they have a falling out, and, and, and uh, Paul and Barnabas split. I think it just would have felt like a mess. But the gospel keeps going. We read, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And Timothy and Paul become very, very close. Timothy's mentioned more times than any other worker in the New Testament. Paul calls him his son. In his final letters in 2 Timothy, he's asking for him in very dear and intimate terms. Uh, God provides Paul with another partner so they can keep going. And, you know, it, it's tempting, you know, because if, if you listened last week at all, um, Paul and Barnabas kind of messed it up. Um, it wasn't their greatest moment. They're fighting over a personnel situation. They don't resolve it. They don't fulfill Christ's prayer for unity. It was sort of a dark moment in their relationship there. And God doesn't say, well, if that's the way you're going to be, you're done. I'm going to get somebody else. No, he has grace. He provides someone to keep, keep the mission going with, and they keep going. I think that's the sovereignty of God at work there. And here we come to this interesting little phrase that the first time you read it, it might seem kind of confusing. He took him, so Paul took Timothy and circumcised him 
because of the Jews in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. Now, if you, if you followed along in Acts 15, they had this enormous counsel and conflict over whether or not you needed to be circumcised to be a follower of Christ. And the conclusion was, no, that's adding law to gospel. You don't need to do that. You do not need to be circumcised to be a follower of Christ. And then six verses later, Paul circumcises a man <laughs> as he starts to go tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is going on here? Well, we don't know. And again, one of the things that I love about the book of Acts is it's so like life. It's just confusing and messy and inconsistent and flops around and people are all over the place. But there is a, there is a reason to what he's doing here. Uh, Timothy is Jewish. His mother was a Jew, so he is Jewish. And in Jewish culture, if at that time, if you were not circumcised, and in that small community they would have known that, you were considered apostate and a violator of the covenant. And Paul's strategy was to go to the synagogues first, and he knew that if Timothy was not circumcised, Timothy would be seen as apostate and a violator of the covenant, and before they even got in the door, their whole mission would end. And that he would have offended the Jews and not had an opportunity to share the gospel. So Jews, in other words, would be offended by Timothy. There would be an unnecessary stumbling block put in their way to hearing the gospel. Did Timothy have to be circumcised to become a follower of Jesus? Not of all. But he made a significant sacrifice so as not to put an unnecessary stumbling block between his Jewish audience and the gospel. And we read, of course, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy continue visiting churches and that they're strengthened in the faith. Now, just to take the last few minutes to kind of reflect on what this might say to us as a church and as believers today, and um, what sacrifices might we be called to make as Christians so that we don't put an unnecessary stumbling block between our neighbors and the gospel? You know, Timothy has the freedom not to be circumcised, but he limits his liberty for the sake of the gospel. He has every right not to be circumcised, but he gives up his right for the sake of others. And Paul will develop this principle in, in several other letters. Uh, the church in Rome was struggling with something similar, Jewish-Gentile tensions. Uh, Jews kept uh, the Sabbath. Gentiles did it on Sunday. On certain holy days, Jews fasted from meat. Gentiles didn't. And they were getting into a fight over it. And the whole chapter of Romans 14 is devoted to teaching them how to handle that. And here's just a couple verses. Paul says, Decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. If your brother's grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So he says, Don't judge each other and limit your freedom so that you don't offend someone for whom Jesus died. The same theme comes up in 1 Corinthians 8, similar discussion. Verse 9 says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so whether we're relating to our neighbors outside the church or our brothers and sisters inside the church, the principle is the same. We are free in Christ. We limit our freedom 
when exercising our freedom might hurt someone we care about. We are free in Christ, but we limit our freedom when exercising our freedom might hurt someone and put an unnecessary stumbling block between them and the gospel. Now, the hard part is to figure out what on earth would that look like for us today. And I, I by no means have 10 quick application points for you because this is complicated. I think it's a little easier to think about it within the family of God. Um, if you feel free to drink wine and you have a friend coming over that's in recovery and can't drink alcohol, you limit your freedom to drink wine that night out of the sake of love. That's just, that's just kind of how we love each other. You know, I think this whole crazy thing with, with massively trying to figure out, I think you've all done a tremendous job. You know, we're all trying to figure this out of just in certain contexts, in certain spaces, what do you do? You try to say, sure, I'll wear it if, if, you, if you need me to wear it. I think you all have done a tremendous job trying to figure that out. But how about outside the church? Uh, and, and this honestly is something, you know, I thought about this all week, and I kept wanting to come up with real crisp applications, but I couldn't because I'm not exactly sure. But it's something I want us to start to wrestle with as we prepare to move into our new neighborhood. I think the question we need to ask as we move into the neighborhood goes something like this. Is there anything we are doing or saying as a church that might create an unnecessary stumbling block to one of our neighbors hearing the gospel? Now, remember, we're not talking about compromising the gospel here. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about limiting our freedom to do something so that we don't unnecessarily offend our neighbor before they have a chance to hear the gospel. And I think we can apply this personally, too. The question might be, is there anything I am doing or saying as a believer that might create an unnecessary stumbling block to one of my friends hearing the gospel? And that really can create quite a tension, too, because part of our calling as Christians is to witness to our faith and to, 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 to voice opinions and beliefs that might not be popular. And, you know, so we do that. That's something we're called to do. Yet at the same time, I think we need to ask, as we do that, when I go on Facebook and I post something about a conviction that I have, is God pleased because I'm witnessing to the truth no matter the cost? Or perhaps am I unnecessarily putting a stumbling block in the way of the gospel? I don't know the answer. I think it's something that we have to wrestle with uh, individually. So, and I, I did a little thought experiment today. What would Jesus post? You know, WWJP. What would Jesus post? Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. But I do think it's a question that, that we can ask ourselves. Uh, in whatever way that I'm communicating, is there anything that I'm doing that is unnecessarily putting a stumbling block in the way of someone else hearing the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, your, your holy word, your inspired word is, 
asking us some good questions as we are in this exciting time of transition and hope and new beginnings, fresh starts. Uh, and we don't know all the answers yet. And we'll probably get it wrong. So thanks for grace. We do ask that, that you would just help us to take into our hearts this principle from this strange little passage in Acts 16 that we may be free to do something, but the way of love would be to limit our freedom so we don't put an unnecessary stumbling block before our neighbor in the gospel. So, Lord, help. Show us what that looks like personally in our individual lives and with the decisions that we make as a church. We ask this in your name. And thanks for the sun coming out. Amen.